Roxy, would you ever attend a mushroom church? Mm-mm. Is this like a secret church that I unlock in Super Mario Brothers? This is a real thing I read about recently at Religion News Service. Mm, I must not have edited that piece. You should go read it. Basically, the gist is that people are taking magic mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms, to commune with the divine and calling it church. Well, maybe we should try it. Or maybe we should just do an episode. We should try it for an episode. (laughs) Report back. (laughs) From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two Christian women making our way through New York without tripping. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. In a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. This week, we're doing something a bit different. We're chatting about a few news items and trends that caught our attention. Think of it as fodder with a friend. Many of you listeners have said you enjoy Roxy's and my conversation before hearing from our guests. What can we say? We give good banter. We also have great guests. That's true today. Later, we'll hear from Black Catholic scholar Gloria Purvis, who in 2020 lost her job at a prominent Catholic radio network after speaking out about the killings of unarmed Black Americans. She and I talk, among other things, about how she sees racial justice as part of the church's holistic pro-life ethic. But first, and on a lighter note, let's talk turkey. (laughs) So we know that turkey has that tryptophan effect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hence the sleeping. Not as strong as some other foods you could ingest. Are we back to mushrooms? We are. And I blame Michael Pollan because <laughs> I have read his book, How to Change Your Mind, twice. And basically, Pollan is a reporter and he's looking at findings around psychedelic drugs like mushrooms, but also LSD, something called DMT, which is also known as the toad because you get it off the backs of these like rainforest toads. Ew. Yeah. And it's very powerful. He writes about being on it. He said it was like being strapped to a rocket ship heading to the moon and like Whoa. on you're on the outside and there's nothing you can do. Does that sound fun? Not sure. Whoa. Um, <laughs> mm. But this book is basically about all the remarkable therapeutic effects that these psychedelic drugs have had for people suffering from PTSD, depression, anxiety. So it's really not about Mm -hmm. like getting high or getting wasted. You know, it is about that he is recounting stories of people who are taking these drugs to find healing or to find insight or resolution. And it's pretty 
it's pretty remarkable kind of the stories that he tells. As Pollen recounts, many people who take these substances, they have like profound spiritual experiences and insights that feel more real than waking life and like can change people. Mm-hmm. So it's no surprise that some groups are building community around these experiences. RNS reported on these churches. They're not religious. They don't have like dogma or teaching. They are considered tax exempt faith-based organizations. <laughs> yes. But some of them, um, as we've reported, really are mostly just kind of fronts for getting people mushrooms. Oh, really? With a religious exemption. Yeah. Oh, thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> yeah. And if and you don't have to dig, dig very deep for them to admit that, which is like why some of them are getting shut down by the states. I see. But but it, but some of them are more like truly guides and trying to walk people through something. But you're saying some of these other, some of them are just about like, let's have a site for administering the drugs. Yeah. And call it a church. Yeah. Instead of a business. Right. Because then you, you can get a, like a religious freedom exemption from something that's illegal. <gasps> Got it. <laughs> just clicked. I don't know. What do you think? Are we going to do this? Um, we taking a trip to a mushroom church <laughs> and reporting back. I yeah, if RNS could fund this like on the ground investigative reporting, um, I think I I am interested in the things that Pollen finds. I think it's natural, mm-hmm. like if you are a person who has spiritual inclinations and longings, you would be interested. Like, okay, what is happening? with these? Like, what is going on here? What can we say is happening? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm curious. I, I've i had some friends. We've, we've even had somebody on the podcast talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I feel like they've had varying experiences mm. with it and in terms of what it's, like, given to them. Mm. Um, mm. I think in the right instance, in the right place, with the right guide, mm-hmm. I'd consider it. Yeah, it's interesting to me that there seems to be greater openness to all of this yeah. like than there was even 5 years ago. I'm I'm Agreed. I'm curious too. Okay, so moving along to another recent religion news headline. Have you seen the headlines about IHOP International House of Prayer founder Mike Bickle? From mushrooms to misbehaving men. That is the life of a religion journalist. Actually, a number of misbehaving men in religion news this week. Sadly, that could be any week. And it's like, yeah, throw a dart at the board. You're probably going to find one. <laughs> okay, let's do a quick overview of these three church scandals, starting with IHOP, not the Pancake House. So I didn't know <laughs> who Mike Bickle was until seeing these headlines. Uh, he's the founder of International House of Prayer. It's a charismatic movement based out of Kansas City. Last month, he was accused of, quote, sexual immorality by people close to the church. Uh, RNS's mm-hmm. Bob Smetana reported it, I think, more accurately, clergy sexual abuse uh, by several women. Fun fact, Mike Bickle preached about uh, false allegations and the sin of false allegations a week before this news came out. Fun. Mm-hmm. Right. From Kansas City to Nashville now, Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Um, Scott Sauls, 
their pastor, who's a prominent pastor and author. Some of you may recognize the name. He was a protege of Tim Keller's. Uh, He wrote quite a few books on gentleness amid the culture war, which turned out to be ironic because this week Saul's resigned after an indefinite leave of absence um, and apologized for an unhealthy leadership style. He said, quote, I verbalized insensitive and verbal criticism of others' work, end quote. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of verbal things. His resignation was accepted, and according to Liam Adams at the Tennesseum, Sauls went to a month-long residential counseling program as part of his discipline, uh, though we don't know for what. And um, I think as of today, uh, the PCA accepted his resignation, but also lifted his suspension. So he's now in good standing and could go to another church. Oh. hmm Well... Jumping from Nashville to California, which is usually advisable, um, Monrovia Fellowship is pastored by Albert Tate, and he has been in the news recently for apologizing to church members recently for inappropriate text messaging. He made this apology this past weekend. He said that church leaders had put him on a path of restoration it seems as if he did not mention in his apology that there were several other allegations against him brought by former church staff, including paying hush money to resigning staff. That's a new one. <laughs> I, I had not heard that one before. Um, malice, manipulation, sexual harassment. Part of the problem is that the church board learned about this inappropriate texting in December 2022. And according Mm. to the report that I saw, the board leaders actually had no intention of telling church members that Tate had had this inappropriate texting and was, like, being disciplined. They just hoped that, like, it would be kept under wraps. Right. Until... That sounds familiar. Yeah. Until church members, like, caught wind of what was happening and started asking staff. And then they were like, oh, we we have to come. We have to... We have to address this publicly. So... Albert Tate has continued to like teach and preach as usual over the last year. We made it <laughs> the- from Kansas City to Nashville to California. But I see some I see some common threads in these stories. And I think we have touched on these kinds of stories before many times on the podcast, but it kind of raises the question for me of do church members need to know uh, Mm -hmm. when a church leader is being disciplined, is being accused of something, how much do they need to know? Like, Mm -hmm. and then do, should we know, like, does, does this stuff need to come out into the light of the public eye? These are really good questions and really hard questions that a lot of people across a lot of denominations are wrestling with right now. Um, And I mean, in some ways, I think it depends on the severity of it. But if these like accusations are are to the point where people are getting fired or resigning over them, Mm -hmm. um, it seems like there were moments along the way when there might have been more checkpoints. Yes. and I don't think it always has to be like the congregation immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would lead to a very 
difficult life as a pastor that you are just always under a microscope. Mm-hmm. But man, it does seem like there's, it seems like the pendulum has, has, has been much further on the other side for a long time. Like mm-hmm. where pastors can get away with a lot for a long time mm-hmm. um, before there's real consequences or accountability. Yes, 100%. I instinctively recoil at vague language. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and I I understand that, like, if you're on a church board or you're an elder or whatever, and, like, you have the responsibility of telling the church what's going on and this behavior, you know, um, I could see why you don't want to give all the details, like this inappropriate text messaging. Well, what was it? Was right. it a butt picture? Right. Was it like, it seems like there should be some kind of avenue where like details are available for people who, who ask for them. Like, because I think otherwise it feels like PR, like we just don't want to tell the truth because it's going to leak out and it's going to make us look bad. So it's more about like image management. Yeah. And I want to say that like, this is why we need authority and this is why we need people that are holding these men accountable. And this is why like sort of the whole non-denom model founder model is flawed. But then the Catholic church has been dealing with this and the Episcopal church has been dealing with this. And like, it just doesn't seem to really, it's, it's not, it's not exclusive to any one model of Mm -hmm. church. Right. I think part of the common thread too, I imagine for each of these stories, and we've talked about this before, is how significant the like lead pastor or founding leader's persona is in the mm-hmm. church or the organization. And there's going to be an instinct to kind of protect that because um, it, like if he falls, we fall. Right. Like what will be left standing? Well, and I mean, I don't think you have to look further than Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill to see that sometimes it doesn't stay standing after they're gone. Mm-hmm. Mars Hill, Rob Bell, Mars Hill, like Rob Bell didn't leave under like a immorality scandal, but left under, you know, a sort of theological scandal with his book about hell mm-hmm. or a lack of hell. And, Mar- <laughs> it's, and that of church hell. is never... <laughs> That church has never really recovered because it was built around him, or it seemed to be. Mm-hmm. I think it's becoming increasingly clear that accountability probably needs to come from outside well, the organization. <laughs> like, Thank you for validating my work. and bob's and liam's yes mostly mostly other people's but i just edit them but yes thank you for validating the existence of of the importance of good religion investigative journalists yeah i'm thinking yeah not just of rns and other credible news organizations but also like independent firms whose job it is to assess to collect information to speak with victims and advocates to like create a fully independent and full orbed report i just like when i hear that the church board is the one that's restoring the pastor after all these problems i'm like no sorry Mm -hmm. like if Mm -hmm. your paycheck (laughs) or your sense of spiritual importance or your friendships 
are all on the line here. You actually can't be the ones to do this. I just, I agree. And I think it's a hard sell for a lot of churches. I mean, it's, it's a hard sell for Southern Baptists, you know, to like pay for that and then to try to trust that firm, which, you know, because it's not Southern Baptist, then has a sort of built in, there. there's a built in suspicion or a built in feeling that these are outsiders. They don't really get us. They don't really understand us. They don't really care mm-hmm. about our mission. So, you know, I do think I agree with you and I think it's, it's, it's difficult and it's difficult to make that case to a lot of these organizations mm-hmm. and particularly when there's been a theology built up for so long that like this is internal accountability work. This is, you know, we, we should be able to have a sort of form of biblical discipline or a form of like a biblical mm-hmm. hierarchy that will protect and that has that ha- a more Christian way of doing things, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. The people who came forward with allegations against Mike Bickle were intent on like doing the Matthew 18 thing and going to him directly. And he just like, he just totally dismissed them and criticized them and Mm. shut them out. And it's like, well, this is why you have to involve other people because if you're dealing with somebody who has a huge ego and personality and reputation to protect, I don't think that like sitting them down at a coffee shop is really going (laughs) to lead to change. Hmm. It just feels like this will be a never ending, a never ending cycle of stories. It really does feel like we're, we're just still in the unraveling. Like we're still Mm -hmm. in the post Mars Hill, post Willow Creek, post Hillsong fallout. Just this incredible scrutiny of these massive leaders and organizations And post-Catholic, the post-spotlight. So is this going to be a regular column? I think it already has been. (laughs) But we could, I mean, we could rebrand it as misbehaving men. (laughs) I feel like that might be a little bit too light of a touch, but, but it is very accurate. All right. Shall we get to our main interview for the day? We should. But first, let's give a shout out to the organization that makes this all possible. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. For all your essential news roundups, visit rns at religionnews.com. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. Don't forget to submit your weirdest ever date story at the new Saved by the City hotline, speakpipe.com slash Saved by the City. One lucky participant will get some SBTC swag, and we hope to share those weird date stories in a future episode. You can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you. Hey there, curious minds. Get ready to embark on a unique journey at the crossroads of money and religion with our new podcast, Money Meet Meeting. The seductive effect of money, we think it can do the work that God does because there's something about money that does that. It's wild. I'm Amber Hacker. And I'm Tom Levinson. Tune in for a blend of wisdom and levity as we decode the path to a more meaningful relationship with money. I think giving, and this is a little crass, but I feel like it's the ultimate middle finger to money. It's liberating. 
to give some away. This podcast is your gateway to a vibrant and thought-provoking exploration of the interconnectedness of wealth and spirituality. Join us as we unravel the surprising influence of ancient wisdom on modern finances. Faith pervades people's lives and our society. And because money is such an important part of people's lives, exploring that intersection of faith and money, I think is super, super interesting. Get ready to be informed, entertained, and inspired to transform your financial outlook with Money Meet Meaning. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Today's guest is Gloria Purvis, a Black Catholic commentator and host of the Gloria Purvis podcast with America Magazine and Media. I spoke with Gloria over the summer about Black Lives Matter, her firing from EWTN in 2020, and why the Catholic Church needs a consistent whole life ethic now more than ever. Hi, Gloria. Thanks so much for being here. Well, I'm so happy to talk to you. It's great to see you again. Likewise. You first came on my radar in 2020, I read a profile of you in the New York Times from Elizabeth Brunig. There was a lot going on in your life and career in that season, but <laughs> yeah. you have a rich life story that starts long before 2020, of course. So maybe to start, tell our listeners a bit about your your upbringing and how you eventually made your way to the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. I grew up Methodist in the South. United Methodist Episcopal, matter of fact, and I'm from that beautiful city, Charleston, South Carolina. I grew up there long after the end of legal segregation. However, practices that have been happening for a long time still continue. So when I went to school, I went to the Catholic school for black kids. Mm. My parents, although they weren't Catholic, they were very serious about education for their children. And so they're like, you know what? Those Catholics have education down pat. So they sent me and my sisters to Catholic school from first grade to 12th grade, which was across the parking lot from the cathedral church. So the actual seat of the diocese was right there. And I really had no idea that my experience of Catholicism was so unique, not until I was an adult, because the very first religious sister I ever met and saw was a black woman. Mm. And it was Sister Mary of Mercy, I think, that really just nurtured such good things in me. It was clear she loved us as students. Just a, one little story. She um, had a poster board and she had our names on it. And if you did something virtuous, something good, she put a gold star next to your name. And when my mother came to pick me up one day after school, there was a gold star next to my name. And she said, oh, what's that for? And Sister Mary explained it to her. And my mother should have just left it alone right there. But no, she had to ask, really, what for? She says, oh, Gloria was honest. And she said, really, what about? And she said, well, she told us that <laughs> she's really five years old instead of six and that the papers were forged for her to go to first grade early. So my parents pretty much were like, you are ready for first grade. So they sort of flubbed my birth date mm -hmm. on a document so that I could go in. And my mother was just standing there going, oh. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for being honest, Gloria. Yeah, thank you for being honest, my dear. So fast forward, I'm 12 years old. We have a food fight <laughs> at school, but we were really good kids. And we said, you know, it's not fair for the janitorial staff to have to clean up after us. So we cleaned the cafeteria up spick and span. Wow. 
<laughs> These are very good kids. <laughs> well, we were just like, this is a mess and we can't have them clean up after us. And I think also <laughs> probably at home, we were used to cleaning up any messes we made. And so it was just mm-hmm. our upbringing. Mm-hmm. We created this mess intentionally so we could intentionally clean it up. And I'm sure there's a little bit of if we didn't, we we fully expected the wrath. You know what I mean? So after recess, after lunch, we had religion class with the principal of the school who was a religious sister, Sister Carmelita. She was not an obli sister of Providence. And we thought for sure we were in the clear because, you know, we cleaned that place up so, so wonderfully. And we were not. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Sister Carmelita was furious. In those days, whenever an adult entered the room, all of the students had to stand up and greet them. So mm-hmm. we stood up and we said, good afternoon, Sister Carmelita. And she was like, good afternoon, sit down. This was also the first time I realized that Catholics were okay with public confession because one by one, we were questioned publicly by Sister Carmelita about our participation in the food fight. And so she said, Gloria. I said, yes, Sister Carmelita. She said, did you participate in the food fight? I said, yes, Sister Carmelita. She said, sit down. She was so mad. And so by the end of it that we all confessed this, she was like, we've got to go over there. I need to pray about this, children. This is not acceptable. I should have been an Olympic swimmer because I held my breath from the time that we left that classroom, walked down the steps, walked across the parking lot and walked to the crypt church of the cathedral because I knew not to make a sound and I wanted to live. And Sister Carmelita was so upset and she was on her knees in front of the monstrance. It holds what we Catholics call Mm -hmm. blessed sacrament. So she was on her knees in front of the monstrance. She was bawling her fists up and just shaking them. She was working it out with Jesus. I mean, I could tell she was angry. But it was in that silence, in the church, in the presence of our Lord, that I had a mystical experience. I remember being consumed by flames. Mm. Like in a good way? In a great way. Mm. Not hurt at all, but like knowing I was on fire, but the flames not hurting me, not consuming me. And in that moment of being engulfed, immolated, I guess, if you will, by the flames, I had an immediate knowing that what was Mm -hmm. in the monstrance was real and alive. Mm. And it changed me. And a couple Mm. days later, Sister Carmelita came back to our religion class and she said, okay, it's time for me to get the Catholics ready for confirmation. And I went to her and I said, sister, I think I'm supposed to be a Catholic. And do you know what Mm -hmm. she said to me? She was like, "Uh -uh, uh -uh, uh uh-uh, 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 nope, nope. You have to go home and ask your parents permission. You can't just come in here and say you want to be a Catholic. (laughs) But I didn't do that. I think this is what a few times I like was disobedient to my parents, like according to what Sister Carmelita had said. So I went home and I just told them, I said, I am becoming a Catholic. Hmm. And I remember my dad looking at my mom like, what is she talking about? And my mom was like, oh, I got this. She said, oh, you're going to be a Catholic? And I was like, yes, all, you know, firm about it at 12 years old. She said, okay, you're going to go to church every Sunday every holy day of obligation. You're not going to eat meat on Fridays and you're going to pray the rosary. And that was my life. I went to church every Sunday, every holy day of obligation. I prayed the rosary and I didn't eat meat on Friday. And my mother was very practical. She wasn't cooking twice. So nobody ate meat on Fridays. (laughs) So (laughs) that's how I came into the Catholic church as a child. Mm. Thank you for (laughs) sharing that fascinating story. You know, 12-year-old having a mystical experience is not a story you hear. In the (laughs) context of your growing up with Mm -hmm. this school that you were attending, eventually converting to Catholicism, being Black and Catholic must have been pretty common. The Catholics around you were also Black Americans. Yes, 
So because of segregation, um, because of the racism within the Catholic Church within the United States, we also had an order of priests that ended up really being mostly black. Mm -hmm. And that was the pastor at the parish where I went in Charleston. And that parish where I went is where all the black Catholics went. So my Mm -hmm. experience with Catholicism Mm -hmm. was very black, for lack of a better word, because it wasn't integrated at all. Mm. And I'm sorry, you're probably going to ask me something else besides that. I just am trying to help people understand. That's actually a a really helpful note that there was almost certainly a black Catholic church and white Catholic churches. They have been separated. Yes. So spanning out today, black Catholics compose only about 3% of the church in the U.S. Obviously, globally, it's a different picture, but definitely you are part of a, a small minority within the Catholic church in the U.S., Mm-hmm. What are the challenges of that? Let me just say this. The doors of the church were not a shield against the sin of racism. Mm-hmm. And it still has its impacts on Catholicism in the United States today. Mm-hmm. It is a challenge of believing, being fully a part of the body of Christ, and having other members of the body of Christ not quite grasping that you're not there mm-hmm. on their terms. You don't need their permission to participate, to express yourself, to actually demand that we actually are faithful followers of the gospel. Also in areas that deal with the dignity of the human person in terms of race. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I can tell you that from the time of the George Floyd murder, I have talked to so many black Catholics who felt so alienated at mass because of the rage of their fellow white Catholics. Sometimes even the things that the priest said from the pulpit, Mm -hmm. just this insensitivity or even hostility toward our rightful desire to not be brutalized by the police, to have our, our human rights, our human dignity, not only seen, but defended. Right. You know, to have people actually have empathy for what is happening, but instead in too many places, there was either an antipathy or hostility. Mm -hmm. Oh, and all this distrust of Black Lives Matter, assuming that if you had a Black Lives Matter sign that you were some kind of Marxist or whatever, when it was simply a global movement that was really trying to draw attention to the lives of Black people mattering and we want to be protected and, you know, served by the police instead of brutalized like anybody else or murdered, you know. Mm -hmm. And yet our cries for these kinds of basic rights that they enjoy themselves were received bitterly. Mm -hmm. It was just like, are we in the same church? Do we believe the same things? Right. That was tough. And I would say that was tough for me as someone who had been openly pro-life, but through this George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, all of that, I began to see that we were starved of the fullness of the gospel in that area, that people really Mm -hmm. didn't understand what it was to believe in the dignity of the human person from the womb to the tomb, because they certainly qualified it when it came to race. You've articulated, as a country, we have seen and witnessed these killings that helped to ignite a massive global movement of Black Lives Matter in 2020. And to see not just a kind of shrug from fellow white Catholic parishioners and leaders, but an open hostility. Mm-hmm. And that seems just so so striking given the 
fulsome, full-orbed Catholic tradition teaching the the sanctity and the dignity of every human life from womb to tomb, mm-hmm. as you said. Yes. You mentioned yeah. you're a pro-life advocate as well. How do Catholic traditional Catholic teachings about the sanctity of life also inform your denouncement of racism? How do you make that connection? So we understand as Catholics that when God said in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image and likeness, at that very moment, that instructs us of who we are. To be made in the image and likeness of God endows us with this special character. That is why every human person is worthy of dignity and respect from the moment of conception till natural death is because God said who we are. And it also tells us something about our relationship to one another, that Mm -hmm. we all have a common ancestor in God. We are all family. And Mm -hmm. if we are sons and daughters of such a great king, we have a royal status, if you will. But the sin of racism, which is a direct rebellion against God's word, says no, not everybody has a royal status. And in particular, as practiced in the United States, only white people have a royal status. And it was put into laws, practices, customs, traditions. You understood that whiteness was the royal status, was the royalty And blackness was not. And that is such a lie from the pit of hell that has served to rend the bonds of the human family, contrary to God's plan Mm -hmm. for humanity. And if we also don't understand that the very things that you see the church is talking about today, oh, the sanctity of marriage, the sacredness of sex, the importance of family, that through the sin of racism, those very things were undermined, were attacked through chattel slavery in the Mm -hmm. United States. You talk about the sanctity of marriage. Oh my goodness. How many men were raping the enslaved women, defiling Mm -hmm. their marriage beds, stepping out on their wives, creating other families? We talk about now the importance of fatherhood. Well, I would like our listeners to understand that the first men to abandon their black children to the slave auction block were their white fathers, okay? We need to think about how these families were broken up and sold and torn apart because of slavery. So all these things that we claim now are so sacred and are under attack, sacredness of marriage, faithful, fruitful forever, one man, one woman. Yeah, right. I think we just need to actually go and read our history. Right. I don't think we even contend with how evil and how much sexual violence happened to the black person through slavery and that there was no legal recourse. Mm -hmm. So after the killing of George Floyd in 2020, you had a very popular radio show called Morning Glory. So much of what you just shared and articulated, helping Catholics understand these connections between their beliefs Mm -hmm. about marriage, family, sex, and brutalized racism that continues to pour out one of the effects Mm -hmm. being the killing of unarmed black men like George Floyd. You called Mm -hmm. racism a lie from the pit of hell. What happened after after that regarding the radio show? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh, I got a lot of hate mail. Really disappointing. But it also showed me that these are people in need of conversion. And if they aren't hearing it here, where else are they going to hear it? Right. And so... 
you sometimes don't realize the demonic stronghold until it's been disturbed. And so you just started to see people who consider themselves faithful Catholic write the most hateful, racist things to me. And they were also writing the largest affiliate for EWTN, Guadalupe Radio, based out of Texas. People were complaining there. People complaining to network. And so our largest affiliate that carried the show across you know, many states dropped the show because they said it was contentious a large swath of our listener base no longer had access to us. If they were listening to Guadalupe, they mm-hmm. just replaced our show. And then at the end of the year, EWTN just said, you're not coming back. And this was like the end, end of the year. So I never got any you know, real response mm. about why. People could only speculate, but I was like, okay, you know, it is what it is. But I wasn't going to not talk about the sin of racism. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to stop giving witness to the truth about the human person according to God's word, according to his plan for humanity. And I also was like, okay, Lord, wherever you want me to go next, I'm going. Mm -hmm. And if he did not want me to speak anymore, I was fine with that because I don't say these things to be popular. I don't say these things to um, please anybody. I say these things because I really, really want to live my life in allegiance to Jesus Christ. So it's been three years (laughs) and a little and a lot can change in three years. You have your own podcast now with America Magazine. Are things better now from your vantage point? Is there greater openness to conversations about racial justice? Mm Mm-mm. I was so surprised um, with a certain sector of the church how openly hostile people have Mm -hmm. been. I've talked among young, I guess people consider themselves maybe traditional. Sometimes they might even say conservative, although I really don't like those terms, conservative and liberal and progressive and stuff like that. I'm like, look, we have the faith, all of it, and we need to follow it. And somehow talking about race to some people seems progressive. And I was like, no, this is simply being Catholic. So um, just a really strong denial of the existence of the sin of racism when people call it a systemic racism, like this really strong denial. Mm -hmm. And so I have to explain to them, St. John Paul II, when he was Pope, called it structures of sin. Mm -hmm. The Holy Father described the people freely choosing sin and the effects of those sins can build structures. And those structures mm-hmm. are hard to undo. And yet, as believers, we're required to attack these unjust systems that plague humanity. So if you're struggling with the term systemic racism, just think of it as structures of sin. Mm-hmm. I was like, what is it that's so special about the sin of racism that you want to deny its existence, that you want to deny its effects? Why is this sin so special that it no longer exists? You know what I mean? The, oh, yeah, we put some laws in place. And I was like, when has a law itself alone ever converted the human heart? Man-made laws anyway, you know? I mean, I have a hunch about why not just white Catholics, but white Christians, white Americans are resistant to the notion of systemic racism. And it's because white Americans fear that they might be implicated. Are you saying that I'm responsible And having to do the work of saying, well, you may not be directly, personally harboring racial animus, but if you are a white American, you have benefited from racist structures. You have participated in them. 
Yeah. And now you have a responsibility to challenge them. I wonder if that resistance is many white Christians, white Americans feeling implicated and not knowing what to do with that guilt. And so they they resist it mm. and try to locate mm. racism as something that happened generations ago. And it's obviously yeah. not true. You're just speaking for all white Americans. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would just say you have really encapsulated a lot of the kind of pushback that I've received, although you were much more gentle and gracious as opposed to how I've experienced it. I have heard so much that I didn't own slaves. I didn't this, I didn't that. Right. For me as a Catholic, it's especially galling to hear that from other Catholics because guess what? As Catholics, we are known for doing spiritual reparations for the sins of others, like sins against the holy name of Jesus. We would do spiritual reparations for that. Sins against the sacred heart of Jesus. We would do spiritual reparations for that. So sins we ourselves have not committed, we will make reparation Mm -hmm. to God on account of those sins. And yet... When it comes to racism, what I'm hearing is a direct refusal. Just as a final note, despite the incredible pushback you've Mm -hmm. received in recent years, the misunderstanding, Mm -hmm. the hostility, what gives you joy to be a Black Catholic in this moment? Well, one of the things that I was, um, was it Pope Paul VI when he was in Uganda? Many, many, many years ago, he had said to the African bishops, bring the gift of your negritude to the church. Really what that means is bring your gift of blackness to the church. And knowing that people understand that our culture, our way of being, our way of celebrating the Lord, our way of interacting with people is a gift that we bring to the church. Pope John Paul II, now St. John Paul II, when he came to New Orleans, made an address to black Catholics where he was just effusive in the gift of Black people to the church. And it's just so encouraging. Those kinds of things just are are wonderful reminders of to why we hold fast to the truths of this particular faith. I consider myself like a barnacle on the side of a ship, and the ship being the Catholic faith, the church, and me being a barnacle. There's no rough water, no storm that is going to turn me loose. I am so grateful that the Lord in his mercy, recognizing the weakness of humanity, has provided for us the sacrament of reconciliation by freely choosing what we call mortal sins that Mm -hmm. kill the spiritual life in you, that you can be reconciled to God. such a beautiful, beautiful gift and receive the graces and strength to continue this battle, you know, of being Christian believers. And also, again, the very thing that brought me into the church, the Eucharist. I can read his word and I can receive the word in an intimate way through the Eucharist. It's something that gives me so, so much joy, um, something that strengthens me for the difficulties of life. <sighs> There's nothing to me like being able to be completely engrossed in the presence of God through prayer. I'm a third order Carmelite, which is um, mm. a particular order uh, in the Catholic Church. I'm a part of the order that was reformed by St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross centuries ago. I'm a lay woman, though. I'm not a religious sister or anything. So I order my life in a way that prayer is very important. And the charism of the Carmelites is to pray and seek the face of God. Some people say, Aram Cordis, that you listen with the ear of the heart, 
right? And so Mm -hmm. to develop this relationship with God, to be able to deal with the difficulties, the rejection, the hostility, um, sometimes even the lies and smears against your name. Mm -hmm. But if you are deeply rooted in prayer, and for me, it's prayer within the Catholic Church through the order of the Carmelites and, you know, the kind of charism that we have that I found just so much joy. Friendships that I've made are for life, you know, with people I've I've made within the faith and the way to be able to serve people, just really being in it with people who are suffering and being ministered to by them as well as me ministering to them. Mm. Those are the joys for me that God has allowed me to see his face in others and to love him there. That is such a deep, I'm going to cry. It's such a deep joy to me. All the um, struggles that I've had in my life where, um, you know, my own faith itself was challenged. I'm thankful that the Lord subjected me to those trials because when you go through trials, you have to recognize how you are not God, how you need Mm -hmm. God's grace and how God does love you. Thank you so much, Gloria, for sharing elements of your story. I'm sure there's, it sounds like there's so many more chapters that we didn't even get to, but <laughs> you're a fascinating person and I just so appreciate your your voice. So thank you. Wow, Caitlin, thank you. Because I'm, I'm like, gosh, I hope people can stand listening to me for like a minute or so. <laughs> Try not to bore them. <laughs> so thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad it was fascinating. I, I wanted to be a good listen for people. And um, mm. so thank you for that. That's, that's really encouraging, actually. Thank you. Mm. Glad to hear that. Tell me about this tree you're putting up. Why, why have you decided Yay. to go down this path? Mostly because my mom is coming here for Christmas. Oh, yeah. That's wonderful. I'm hosting her this year. We felt like it would be better to do Christmas somewhere new this year and not at home. So mom is coming to New York City and we're going to do all the Christmassy things. Yes. And that means I have to do up the decorations. Absolutely. This, I think, is a wonderful plan. And New York is truly magical all through December. So I hope you and your mom have a lovely time. What can I not miss taking her to? I mean, I think the tree is cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Walking along Fifth Avenue, seeing the uh, store windows, Mm -hmm. the holiday markets in Union Square Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Bryant Park are fun, Mm -hmm. too. Would your mom do ice skating in Central Park? A hundred percent no. (laughs) Well, maybe you can skate for her and she can watch from the sidelines. I would fall immediately. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I think we can wrap. All right, let's wrap. Save by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Wyndham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone. And Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. After a leave of abstinence. <laughs> <laughs> After a leave of abstinence could also get you fired. <laughs>